1: I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Dr. Peter Floresheim about his new book, Waste into Weapons, Recycling in Britain During the Second World War. This book came out in Cambridge University Press in 2015. Floresheim's book shows us how wartime recycling exemplified total war. It served as a symbolic link between the material world and society. It helped civilians identify their role in the war, and its material demands. Far from boosting morale in the British public, Lorsheim shows us salvage could alienate large sections of the population and destroy invaluable artifacts of British heritage, including archival documents and elements of the built environment for use in weapons production. I hope you have a chance to pick up this book, especially if you're interested in environmental history or the history of the environmental movement. This book shows us the recycling's history does not start with the conservation movement of the 1970s, but with the wartime environment of the 1940s. It can show us some valuable lessons on how we approach recycling today, and that problems might remain in how we approach issues of waste and salvage in contemporary life. It was a pleasure to talk to Peter,
0: and I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you.
1: Peter, I'm glad you could be with us today. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks very much, James. I'm delighted to be with you.
1: Great. Uh, let's start about talking uh, talking about what brought you to environmental history, and more specifically, let's talk about what brought you to uh, Britain in the 20th century in particular.
0: Well, I've been working in environmental history really since my uh, senior year at Carleton College, and I got into it because I was really interested in connecting contemporary environmental problems to my study of history, and i was particularly drawn to uh, Britain because of its role in, in early industrialization, urbanization. And I was also involved uh, outside of my work as a history student in uh, I- environmental activism. And so I put those two things together and became interested in the history of air pollution. And so that's what I started working on really with a senior... Uh, seminar paper on Victorian Britain as an undergrad, and then as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I decided to focus my master's and PhD work on the problem of coal smoke in British cities during the 19th and 20th centuries, and I was particularly interested in the cultural aspect of people's understanding of environmental problems and connected that also to uh, technology to, uh, growth of, uh, early environmental activist movements. And, uh, after I finished that project, I was interested in working more on the 20th century. And I was drawn to World War II, I think, because of just the, it, it's such a, such a fulcrum of the 20th century. And obviously technology played an entire, a very important role in that war. But I, I felt that the environmental impact of the war and, and really the the ways in which our resources were uh so critical to, to that war really hadn't been looked at very much. So I'm I'm all of all of the work that I do really tries to integrate environment and technology and modern Britain. Okay. Yes.
1: Um it's interesting. Your work is um talks a lot about the um, recycling and how uh, recycled materials were used to uh, make weapons. And did you think that this historiography about Britain and the war focused too much on uh, production and manufacturing and not so much about um, saving resources and maybe turning them into uh,
0: new materials for the war effort? Exactly. That, That was one of the reasons that I decided to write waste into weapons uh and in in fact, I think that historiography is has relatively little to say about uh production either i think so much- so much of the traditional writing about Britain during the second world War focuses for for good reason on the the social and psychological aspects of the home front uh enduring the the blitz uh the uh particularly during the the early period of the war before the United States entered in uh the difficulties that that Britain faced when much of the continent was under axis control and so i i think there's a there's a lot of reason that people were drawn to to that story uh as well as to the the traditional military history of the war uh but then Within the last 20 years or so, I would say there's been an increased attention to the role of technology, the the production drive, but a lot of that work didn't really focus very much on the raw materials that that went into uh, Britain's uh, war production. And so that's that's one of the things that I was really trying to address with this book.
1: Okay. Uh, Interestingly, especially for Britain, unlike the United States, Britain does not have a abundance of natural resources. Of course, they had coal and uh, iron, but not really very much else compared to the massive uh, resources of the United States. Uh, did you think that was something, uh, a story that hasn't really been told? Like you wanted to, to hear it from, uh, a story from more or less the have-nots from the haves in your book, uh, and we'll get to it in the podcast. You talk about lend-lease and uh, the rel- relationship between the sort of bank, nearly bankrupt UK under bombing, and the United States that has all these uh, resources. Then uh, that they sort of hoard for themselves. That
0: Britain really relied on. Exactly. Um, Britain was was at the at the heart of a, a global trading network uh, that developed gradually, but uh, certainly by the time of the First World War. Uh, Britain was dependent on imports for not only many of its raw materials, but also for much of its food. And some of these supplies came from relatively short distances on the European continent, but others of course came from half a world away. And this worked quite well for the British during peacetime, but once, once war broke out and there were, uh, submarines german submarines sinking uh british as well as neutral uh merchant ships it became much more difficult to obtain materials and then the other another very important aspect of this was that as as the axis powers gained control over countries that britain had relied upon as sources of uh papermaking material in the case of north africa or scandinavia or uh, natural rubber supplies from the Far East that were under Japanese control, it became really a, a crisis of, of immense proportions for the British.
1: Okay. Well, um, just talking about the submarine campaign, maybe this would be a good way to segue into a uh, chapter one, uh, salvage in times of peace and war. And, and this chapter really starts with the first world war and, and what efforts the british made in trying to recycle battlefield uh scrap for the war effort could you tell me a little bit about it
0: yeah um for a long time people have been uh trying to uh, capture enemy weapons on the battlefield or uh reuse uh weapons that had been gathered up um after after people were were killed and try to reuse those uh, and during the first world war the british as well as other other parties to the conflict really systematized this uh effort to try to bring bring back uh materials that and you know weapons uh crates uh, ammunition uh even the, the some of the cases around artillery shells could be refurbished and so they developed a very extensive system of because all all countries were overwhelmed by the the number of shells that they were firing, the number of guns that were in use, and so they the British systematized this within the army and developed an elaborate supply chain uh, stretching back to the UK. In some cases, other uh, materials were refurbished uh, close to the Western Front, and they they really perfected a system of of trying to uh, recycle materials for the war effort from from the battlefield back to the battlefield and toward the end of the war they also looked to civilians on the home front as a as a potential source of materials that could be harvested and and put into the the war effort. But this happened quite late in the war and they there was a, a real tension in in Britain on a lot of scores about trying to balance uh, fighting the war but on the other hand uh maintaining a quote-unquote business as usual so there was a real reluctance to upset the apple cart in a, in a dramatic way and you can see this with the Britain was was really unique in not uh, having conscription until 1916 uh, whereas most of the other belligerent powers had had uh, they drafted soldiers uh, from the get-go and similarly the British were quite reluctant to institute strong wartime controls over the domestic economy and so there was a there was a lot of reticence about just how 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 far to push civilians in terms of requiring them to contribute materials that would be used in the war effort and so it the the approach generally was quite voluntary and people were encouraged to collect uh tin cans or cardboard there were a few municipalities that suggested uh cutting down the iron railings and contributing them to the the war effort but none of this went very far uh on the civilian side but there was there was a lot of uh there were a lot of ideas about what might be done and one of the things that did happen uh, on the civilian side had to do with paper. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of the paper that was normally thrown away in peacetime was recycled in wartime on the home front in Britain during the First World War in order to make things like cardboard boxes as well as to replenish the, the stocks of paper that the wartime government used. And a lot of this paper actually came from government offices at the national as well as the municipal level. And as a result of this, some some historical records were actually destroyed, Uh, ephemera, local newspapers, and even by some accounts, some of the primary sources for the First World War, records that were only a few months old, once they'd been processed, they were recycled. And this was something that the historians and archivists in the interwar period really bemoaned about the first world war. And some of them were determined to to try to have a, a more cautious approach about what was discarded when the second war came, but I may be jumping ahead of myself a little bit here. <laughs>
1: um, well, yeah, I mean, one of the most striking parts of your book is to what extent uh, government uh, persuasion and coercion to uh, recycle paper in particular, uh, has this effect of, of getting people to destroy Britain's national heritage as it's being bombed by the Germans. Uh, there's all these pushes to, you know, clear out the libraries, clear out the archives. We don't need this anymore. Uh, you quote um, uh, futurist uh, thinkers from the 20s about, oh, well, you know, ignore the the past, you know, the future that we're going to build is going to be so great. We don't want to be chained to the past. Um, how did you come to that particular idea? I thought it was really excellent uh, sort of uh, comment on modernity and comment on sort of becoming modern in the British uh, sense, but while also kind of destroying something that was sort of deeply embedded in British identity.
0: I was really struck by the paradox that at the same time that the British were trying to defend their 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 lives and their their buildings and their libraries against the onslaught of, of the bombs coming from the air. They were destroying uh, voluntarily some of that same heritage in the name of fighting the war, and so it it it, it's, it it seemed very puzzling to me, and I was I was really drawn to it. And I I think there's you mentioned the the modernist impulse, and I think that's that's something that really was running through uh, a large section of British public opinion during the early 20th century. Uh, And I I think uh, that's something that a number of historians have have done an excellent job uh, pointing to the the tensions between tradition and modernity in modern British society. And so I think for, for some people who really felt weighed down by the past, who felt that, uh, Britain was was far too traditional and conservative. They they had a hostility to things that symbolized the past and one one example of this uh which proved to be uh really central to the war effort was an ongoing debate about the the aesthetic and utilitarian uh benefits of iron railings which are such a distinctive characteristic of the urban landscape in Britain, around public buildings, around parks, squares, as well as in front of many private residences. And there were, there were many people in the 1920s, uh, but even going back as, as uh, early as the 1860s, who criticized iron railings as, as being a bastion of class privilege, as something that was uh, really uh, trying to ostentation. Ostentatiously present, uh, wealth, uh, something that was excluding the poor from access to green space in cities. And they, there were many people who said they're simply ugly. They're, uh, and many people particularly criticized mass produced cast iron railings that became, uh, an important, uh, output of, of British factories in the 1830s or so and even if they valued uh, handmade wrought iron railings from the 17th or 18th centuries they denigrated 19th century railings as a vulgar product of mass industrialism and so there's this hostility toward that aspect of the built environment and when the war came those people who had a had a long standing opposition to railings saw the the Second World War as a a golden opportunity to have an excuse, have a reason to get rid of them. And so running through a lot of that rhetoric is this uh, modernist impulse as well as an egalitarian impulse. Uh, And then in the case of of paper and and historical records, there is a feeling among some people that, Really, the, the records of the past, particularly things like uh, ephemeral documents, uh, things that historians today would really value as a as a window into the cultural and social history of the 18th and 19th centuries, many many people in in wartime believed that that was sort of a luxury that that Britain couldn't couldn't afford to maintain, and that it really had no purpose anymore. Uh, it was, it was simply a a bunch of waste paper that was cluttering up the shelves. And so this sort of hostility toward, uh, those, the, the intellectual or, or, uh, informational content of that paper was really neglected by a lot of people. Uh, and so this led to a wholesale clearing out. There were many, many, um, town and, and county offices that had large stocks of poor law records and medical relief records and things like that from the 19th century. And they, in in many cases, they weren't well looked after. In some cases, they were uh, suffering from mildew or they perhaps mice had gotten in and started to nibble at the edges. And they believed in peacetime that they were required to, to keep them. In some cases, the the law in, did have requirements that records be kept for a, a certain amount of time. Uh, in in private law offices, this was true as well. Many many legal offices had records from their clients and past clients going back centuries. And when the war came along, uh, they left at the chance to to do something patriotic as well as to clear out their their storerooms of paper. And there were very few people who were raising questions about whether this really was a good idea to, to toss everything. And so the archivists and the historians who were opposing this really had an uphill battle to fight. And they they asserted that actually most of the material, something sometimes they asserted that 95% of the documents that were being held could be discarded. But they were really trying to save what they considered to be the the most valuable 5%. And in in order to do that, they believed they had to sacrifice 95%.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's interesting uh, in your book uh, when the law offices and the archives want to get rid of their materials to to help the war effort. There also seems to be this idea that there's no more burden anymore, you know, that, um, you know, these these documents are are sort of a material burden to a lot of these organizations that they're excited to get rid of the the state has finally said well hey we need your paper and they they say well okay we can give this up and it's only a relatively small amount of uh as you say archivists and historians that want to defend this stuff um and even at that point it's it's a small percentage and, and we can only speculate on what has been lost in this
0: uh, uh, endeavor. But one of the most intriguing things that I discovered in my research were little clues in some computer catalogs and archival databases about some of the materials that had been lost. And I, I think this is, it's simply the tip of the iceberg because oftentimes when things are discarded, nobody Things to keep a record of what it was that was that was uh, sent away, but uh, one of the things that I included in the book was a, a detailing of, of some of the items that are now gone forever because they were they were given over for the war effort.
1: Okay, well, um, let's get back to the text, and we can talk about uh, chapter uh, persuasion and its limits, uh, where you discuss uh, the efforts this. Sp- the sort of uh more voluntary efforts that the state uh asked citizens to uh recycle for in particular uh women's organizations uh organizing to help the war effort by collecting uh salvage and and how uh the salvage industry uh the peacetime salvage industry sort of is kind of dismissive towards any sort of uh uh state or civil or voluntary organization sort of trying to uh save these materials for the war effort.
0: Right. So in in peacetime there was a, a very large and and uh uh deeply rooted salvage system or recycling system. There were there were uh, dealers in all manner of of materials and in many in many societies uh things that people wear out or discard don't simply end up in a, in a landfill or in a dump. Uh, other, other people find a use for them. And so it's listeners may be quite familiar with, uh, contemporary, uh, cases where they're in, uh, develop in the developing world. There are, there are places where the castoffs of the wealthy are repurposed, uh, and you know, recycled or reused by uh the poor and in even in industrial societies like the united states and great britain there's uh there was a long-standing uh practice of of people going door to door to collect things like rags uh bones broken broken utensils and they would find a market for them and so this this existed sort of out of the public eye in some ways it was it was not something that was there, there were in the early 20th century uh there weren't municipal recycling programs operated by town or city governments but there were there were informal networks of trade and many people were familiar with uh what were often referred to in britain as the rag and bone men who would make regular rounds in neighborhoods and and Ask for people to contribute things, uh, and sometimes people would simply give them over and other times there would be some sort of barter or a small cash payment for things that the, uh, junk collectors wanted. And then when the war came along, there was a real conflict between the state's desire to essentially monopolize all of the raw materials in, in the country versus the continued uh, interest on the part of the the scrap trade to maintain its livelihood. And so one of the things that I trace in the book is the sort of ideological debates between whether it was better to have a a, a government run program or to rely on the the private sector to collect materials and a particular concern of municipal governments was that these private dealers, private collectors would skim off the most valuable recyclable materials and leave behind things that had uh, less of a monetary value but might be nonetheless very essential to the war effort. And so the effort on the part of some people in in the government, both at the national level and in some cities, uh, was to to try to Ban the private collection of of recyclables, and to, to claim that it it all anything that people threw away or put out on the curb could only be collected by official uh, state or municipal employees. And the the private uh, scrap collectors fought back, and they they said we can do the job more efficiently. Uh, we don't need uh, government. Budget to do it. We'll, we'll fund our own activities out of our own resources. We don't use petrol because we, we work on foot or we have, you know, horse drawn vehicles. And so they, they made a, a number of effective arguments and they, they actually succeeded in uh, preserving sort of a dual system. So there, in many places, there were municipal collections as well as Private collections and the, the government came around and said, as long as you're donating something as scrap to the war effort, it'll reach the factories one way or the other, either, either through municipal salvage collection or through the, the private scrap dealers. The important thing is to turn over the material. But it, it did, it did create a number of, uh, it did create tension between uh, private and public. And a lot of municipalities argued that they really could not maintain; they couldn't support their recycling collection if they were competing against uh, private dealers who who were only or, or were not obligated to take the less valuable materials. And so this was a constant battle between cities and Whitehall over who was who was going to really subsidize the recycling program because it, it really could not pay for itself um if some of the materials were were going to a to the private market and some were being collected publicly
1: okay yeah it, one of the best parts of of this section in the book is where you talk about how the private um dustmen the the private um scrap dealers they argue fairly persuasively um especially in um uh you know, sort of in a discursive environment of, you know, laissez faire, saying, hey, we know what's good recyclable refuse and we know what's not very useful. Uh, it's interesting how the state sort of gets children involved and the children start, you know, collecting all these tin cans and all these books and all these other things. And uh, uh, women housewives are encouraged to, to, you know, take their stuff and, and collect it and organize. But there's always this sort of nagging uh, section, uh, especially in um, the press related to uh, the scrap trade. I believe the the journal is called Public Cleansing. You you have it a few times in the book, and they talk about, hey, hey, these are amateurs. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it's it's we're the professionals. We know how to do this. Uh, well, how how did this end up? Um, was it ever resolved?
0: well it's it's really a fascinating story, and there there the gender aspect of this is is really crucial. so I think from the from the government's perspective, they were the government was really looking for a way to cut costs in more time. and so they uh, they tried a number of things they They initially hoped that the the municipal uh, garbage Collectors, or in British parlance, the dustmen would simply add recycling to their list of responsibilities. And this, this proved to be really difficult because many of them were, were joining the armed forces. Many were finding better paid employment in munitions factories. A number of them were being called up, uh, and drafted, even if they would have preferred to, to stay working as, as a, as a dustman. And so the government looked for other, other People to help with the effort and people who they wouldn't have to pay. So they, they looked to voluntary, uh, action on the part of women. They, they approached the women, uh, women's voluntary services, which was set up on the eve of the war, really with the idea of providing first aid and assistance, uh, to people who'd been bombed out of their homes. People, uh, they, this was a very large, uh, organization that involved hundreds of thousands of women across Britain who played a really vital role in helping Britain maintain uh, really a, a civil society in, in the face of wartime challenges. And so the WVS, as it was known, became a really important part in efforts to involve women in contributing recyclable materials from their own home. And then, as you mentioned... The government also recruited children, both through the WVS, which had a a sort of an approach uh, to have women volunteers then encouraging school children to recycle materials, collect things, but also through the Board of Education. Many schools established extensive recycling programs, and then children would bring in materials which would be collected at the schools and then funneled into the war effort. And so this put a lot of pressure on the, the private scrap trade which realized that a lot of the materials that they had been uh, acquiring in the past from people's people's homes and in some cases from businesses were now being diverted into, into this uh, state-run effort that was being carried out by women and children. And so they, they made arguments, in some cases blatantly sexist arguments about how, you know, women couldn't possibly know about the intricacies of the, the scrap trade and all the things that went into it. Uh, they, they argued that they were the professionals and that, and they, they often uh, denigrated the women who were going door to door trying to collect material. Uh, and they argued, uh, pointedly in the pages of Public cleansing, which was the magazine, uh, sort of the trade journal for the m- scrap, uh, both the scrap trade as well as the municipal, uh, trash collection. Uh, they argued that some of the, some of the WVS members didn't even realize that there wa- existed a private scrap trade. And so there was one instance which may or may not be True, but someone who was a scrap dealer uh, alleged that a WVS member had actually come to his place of business and asked if he had any salvage to donate to the war effort. And he he straightened his his uh, posture and said, "You know, I, my father before me and I have been in in this business for many decades, and we were part of the <laughs> recycling effort of the country." And mm-hmm. uh, he. Wrote a letter to the to this uh, public cleansing magazine, uh, using this as an argument against the, the government's reliance on what he considered to be uh, inexperienced and uneducated volunteers.
1: Okay, and I, I think this is a good point to talk about what was collected. What did the state want from the civil Population of Britain and, and what was it used for? Uh, you mentioned that they collected paper and and bones and and metals and and I I think uh, uh, before I read this I knew a little bit about the subject but I didn't know all the possible uh, uses for these materials. What were they used for and and how did these how did this waste actually turn into weaponry?
0: Okay, well there there were a lot of different materials that were essential to, to wartime. And I think most people immediately think about steel as sort of the important material and that steel is and was very important for, for military hardware. Uh, and yet that was just one of, one of many materials. The The list included uh rubber paper, uh, Bones could be used for uh making explosives uh, waste scraps of uh fat or uh vegetable waste from kitchens could be fed to chickens and pigs, which would help make the country more self self sufficient in food production uh so just about all of the things that that are all the materials that we commonly recycle today were recycled in, in wartime Britain. Uh, but one one big difference between uh, the 1940s and today is that we use a lot of plastics today. And plastics were really in, in, in their infancy during World War II. And so there was not much consumer use of plastics. And the ones that existed were things uh, like Bakelite, uh, which telephones were made out of. But they weren't the... the Plastic disposable bottles that that we're used to today um uh, there were a lot of glass containers glass was one material that really was did not feature in the government recycling campaigns there they really it didn't it didn't have an important wartime purpose it wasn't in short supply uh, but just about everything else was was deemed to be important. Uh but one of the one of the problems, and this gets back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the laissez-faire arguments of the private scrap dealers, is that the the government really had had painted itself into the corner in in a sense through price controls and rationing. And so there there actually was not a free market in materials during the war. And so some things that were quite valuable to the war effort the government deliberately prevented the, the prices from rising to a point that would have made it profitable for the private sector to, to recycle. And so this led the government to, to assert that everything was equally valuable essentially for the war effort and that you couldn't really put a price on it. And that, that was a big part of the, the sort of the publicity campaign campaign during the war. Uh, so the, the Ministry of Supply, which was in charge of both overseeing the recycling effort on the national level as well as running many of the weapons factories in, in Britain, made the claim that tin cans were just as valuable as worn out uh, uh, railroad uh, rails, which were uh, high grade steel, a- as important as uh, Old water bottles and uh, railings in front of people's houses and paper and, and they just painted it all as equally valuable. Uh, but the, the the problem actually was that some things cost a lot more money to collect. For instance, an old old uh, set of tram rails that was buried under asphalt contained very high grade metal, but it was very expensive to to dig up the streets and pull these rails out of the ground. And similarly, uh, tin cans, which are actually about 99% steel with a thin coating of tin, turn out to be a, a real hassle for those who try to recycle them. Uh, they're, they're very, they're very bulky unless you, you wash and, and crush them. They have glue and paper, uh, labels on them. They often had bits of food inside of them which would attract flies and vermin. And even if you collected thousands of them, they didn't amount to very much weight for all the effort that went into them. And then the difficulty of them being a mixture of two different types of metal, tin and steel, posed further problems. And so one of the, one of the real Difficulties that Britain faced in its wartime recycling campaign was that people noticed that a lot of the tin cans that they had laboriously collected and contributed ostensibly to the war effort were just sitting around in large piles in village squares in uh, in countryside uh, locations and they they quite quite reasonably asked well if if the government said that these are valuable materials for the war effort, but they're not actually using them, they're just letting them sit around and attract flies. Why should we contribute things that we normally would not get rid of in peacetime, such as the railings in front of our house or the family papers that we've been accumulating, you know, the letters from uh, missionary children or family family uh, papers children's school papers uh from decades earlier things like that and so this this was really a threatened to be a real problem for the government's uh campaign and so at the same time that they were uh requisitioning um, materials and the the one of the one of the few materials that the government took against people's will during the war was the iron railings and so there were a lot of people who were quite upset about the fact that they they could not say no or in, in, in fact they, they could technically appeal the removal but very few of the appeals were allowed so there were many cases of contractors showing up uh, often without warning and using hacksaws or welding torches to remove iron railings that had stood in some cases for uh, over a hundred years in front of buildings and to have those carted away and at the same time that that was happening, the tin cans that people had contributed were in in many cases just uh sitting around in in piles and the The technical problem for for the industry really was how to how to strip off the tin and separate tin, which was a valuable material from the steel, which was also valuable, but mixed together you couldn't really do anything very useful with it other than make it into a very low quality iron. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I want to talk about uh, Lenleys and and the United States because in this chapter, you talk about how Lenleys, although it was absolutely vital for the survival of Britain, it was also somewhat of a double-edged sword. The American envoys uh, that were sent to Great Britain are are going around um, uh, around London looking at railings, old iron railings and lamp posts and and all kinds of useful civil uh, pieces of equipment in the material world and are saying well we're giving you all these resources you have to take all this stuff down like you need to make your recycling uh, program even more intensive than it was and it, it is really interesting Especially with uh, tin cans, is that Britain, although it's it's a modern modernizing industrial power, it doesn't have all the equipment, all the uh, industrial capacity to use all the recycled materials. So there's a point where uh, the British are like, well, we have all this uh, these tin cans, but they're they're you know making huge huge mountains in the the village squares because. There's no industrial capacity to use them, unlike the United States. While at the same time, the United States is is threatening to um, hoard all the scrap metal that Britain relied on to build all of the tanks and artillery and and
0: planes needed to um, continue the war. That that's a really good point. And the 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 Americans really uh, had had a great deal of of influence because they controlled the purse strings. And so it was it was both a matter of the US government wanting to suggest what it considered to be the most efficient way for the British to run their economy and they they made really uh extraordinary demands for the the British to open their accounts and have American auditors come in and, and look at every every penny that was being uh sent to britain from the united states for the war effort and so the, the americans insisted that this this was the money that they were investing they they wanted to make sure that it went to uh was spent the way that they wanted it to be spent but there was also of course an important political aspect to this and the roosevelt administration faced a, a lot of skeptics in congress both before and after pearl harbor who argued that American taxpayer money should remain in the United States and it should be directed first and foremost and and perhaps exclusively to defending the United States rather than supporting its allies. And so in order to defend itself against congressional criticism, the executive branch felt really compelled to, to avoid anything that might Create political embarrassment on the part of the British and how they were spending the money. And they really wanted the British to publicly demonstrate that they were tightening the, their belts and using using materials extremely uh, conservatively and not wasting any money. And so the the one of the things that I found in the archives, time and again, the American officials would make make the point that if 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 we in the United States are going to be giving all this money to Britain, and it was billions of dollars in loan lease assistance, then the the British had better prove that they were recycling every bit as much as American citizens were. And so this this became a, a, a real pressure uh point between the, the two allies and at at one point there was a there was a real shortage of non ferris Metals, which includes everything from uh, aluminum to to brass to lead, and the the shortage of copper, in fact, was so severe in the United States that in in one year, I believe it was 1943, the U.S. mints actually made pennies out of steel rather than copper because all the copper was going into the war effort. And at at this point in the war, the Americans had a number of quite uh, fractious meetings in London with British officials arguing that the, the British were not doing enough to collect non-ferrous metals from the civilian population. And there were, there were actually plans drawn up to melt down all the church bells in Britain in order to uh, contribute more money for the making of, of weaponry. Uh, more, more material, um, brass and bronze and, and such, and also there were attempts uh, or there were proposals to actually seize uh, things that belonged to private individuals, uh, including statues and uh, trophies and things like that. And it didn't reach that stage, but the American officials insisted that the British had to draw up plans and and. Have a, have a system in place should the need arise for that to happen. And there, understandably, there was some resentment on the part of the British to being told exactly how to run their own war effort and what, what they needed, what the British government needed to do to satisfy the Americans in terms of their, how they treated their own citizens.
1: Okay. Well, uh, we're getting towards the end of the book and i just want to talk about two things i want to talk about firstly uh and it's it it's um surprising we haven't talked about it uh already is the blitz scrap uh the uh destroyed damaged buildings in london but also in coventry and in a num- number of the bil- um uh, villages on the south coast that had a what the british believed as valuable materials including structural steel and uh and would used, later used to make uh, bombs to bomb Germany, uh, strangely enough. And I wanna to talk to you about um, the post-war period and uh, the fatigue, recycling fatigue, and, and the sort of the end of civil recycling in Britain and, until the um, contemporary era.
0: Sure, um, so in, in September 1940, the German Luftwaffe started bombing London and other other British cities, such as Coventry, uh, Glasgow, uh, soon, soon followed. And this caused enormous loss of life and, and destruction. But ironically, it was also, there was a silver lining to it as far as British officials were concerned because all of this destruction resulted in a great deal of rubble from which Valuable materials could be harvested and put into the war effort. Uh, broken bricks were actually ground up and used to make runways for uh, both the British uh, RAF, but also the American Army Air Force when it arrived. Uh, steel, structural steel from buildings, could be melted down and turned into bombs or other war material. And so, as this went on, there was there was a, a conflict between maximizing war production and trying to save buildings that were damaged but could be rebuilt. And one of the really surprising things that I discovered in the archives was a a very explicit discussion about the fact that some buildings would need to be sacrificed even though they could have been saved, they could have been shored up and repaired. Officials took the decision to tear them down so that they could extract the steel from them, and so this led to the destruction in the in the name of fighting the war of a lot of buildings. That it's it's a shame that they they were lost, uh, and this added to the destruction that the the German military machine was uh, inflicting on on the UK during the war. Uh, in other cases, the the use of these materials from buildings that had been heavily damaged or destroyed lent a lot of uh symbolic value to the recycling campaign. So, for instance, when the House of Commons debating chamber was destroyed in a in a German bombing raid, the press, with the guidance of the Ministry of Supply and the Ministry of Information, made a big deal out of the fact that. Some of the girders would be melted down and, and turned into weapons that would uh, inflict equal damage on Germany. And so there's a there's a really important symbolic aspect to a lot of the recycling, and this was was one example of this. Uh, moving to the the end of the war and the post-war period, there was a, a real fatigue that set in about all manner of, of wartime sacrifice and, and deprivation. And, and the recycling campaign was part of this. People were were tired of uh, wartime shortages. They were tired of the, the make, do, and mend campaign. And particularly when they realized that a lot of the effort that they had put into collecting metal cans had been for naught, and they felt a resentment about having lost their iron railings in many cases, there was a, a quite a, a backlash that that happened. And so as soon as the government lifted the mandatory uh requirements that people send their their waste paper or their waste rubber or even their waste string to a recycling collection rather than simply putting it in the trash. And then people uh jumped at the opportunity to do that. And at, at the end of the war, uh, actually one of the officials who'd been in charge of, uh, food production during the war announced, uh, according to some reports that he looked forward to, uh, having a bonfire as, instead of sending his paper to recycling. And there was, there was, he came in for quite a bit of criticism and then he, he backtracked and said that he, he hadn't really been, uh, serious he was just sort of expressing his his wish about getting back to the good old days of being able to to throw things away but there was a there was a definitely a a, an interest on the the part of a lot of people to return to what they saw as the way things should be which in their view was to be able to freely throw things away rather than say contribute them to to a, a salvage drive but of course the the problem that the British economy and the British government faced in 1945 was that they had, they had invested so much wealth and blood in the war that the, the country could not afford to waste valuable raw materials even after the victory was achieved. And this problem was compounded for the British when the U.S. government very quickly cut off lend-lease supplies uh, almost immediately upon the Japanese surrender in 1945. And so the, the mandatory recycling of paper actually, uh, continued, uh, in many places. Uh, and there was, there was a, there was also a very strong effort to encourage municipalities to maintain salvage collections. And this, this became uh, a really contentious issue between the central government and municipalities who said, well, we, we can't, we can't do it unless we can make it pay. You know, if it's, if we're going to be collecting materials at a loss, who's going to support it? Is it going to be the local rate payers or is it going to be the central government? And as most, most listeners will know, rationing actually continued until the early 1950s in Britain. And so this, uh, Feeling of, uh, sort of associating recycling with wartime sacrifice was one that was deeply ingrained and a lot of people, uh, connected in, in their minds to, to shortages, to rationing. And this, I think, played a role in making the, many of the British, uh, members of the British public resistant to recycling when it was promoted in the 1960s and 70s and 80s for entirely different reasons having to do with uh, sustainability and uh, environmental protection as opposed to fighting a war. Okay. Well, uh, Peter, last question. What are you working on now? Well, I'm continuing to work on the intersection of Britain, environment, and war, and I'm looking at the environmental history of the British military-industrial complex. That's something that a lot of historians have looked at in the case of the United States, but there hasn't been much attention to it in the UK. So at the moment, I'm looking at uh, really what was the environmental uh footprint, uh, both at the time and in subsequent decades, of weapons production. So the the book waste into weapons really focused on what went into the weapons factories. And in my new research, I'm really looking at what came out of the factories in terms of looking at the smokestacks and the, the drain pipes that emptied into rivers and streams, as well as into the, the effect that these factories had on the, the workers who worked in the factories, the, uh, Soldiers who were in charge of the weapons, and then the, the wider public and environment, uh, thinking about conventional explosives as well as things like chemical weapons.
1: Excellent. Okay, well, um, I think we've taken enough of your time. Uh, this has been a podcast with Peter Thorsheim. Uh, it, his book is Waste in the Weapons. It's out on Cambridge University Press, and it came out in. Uh, 2015. Peter, thank you so much.
0: Thanks very much, James. It's been a pleasure talking with you.